so glad that you're here. Thanks so much for doing that. Um, you know, I know that some of you in the room are introverts and that's a really awkward moment for you. Uh, I know that some of you don't know anybody here. And so it's kind of awkward, like, should I be the one to say hi? And then after, ever since COVID, we're all trying to decide, well, who, do I shake hands? Do we hug? What are, what are you good with? We don't know. So I know it can be awkward for some people, but we think it's really, really important that we have a community. This is your church family. And so it's really important that you get to know each other. It can be really easy in a place this big to sneak in and sneak out without anybody noticing. And I know some of you are saying, I know that's why I come here. <laughs> But that's not what we want. We want to be able to be in community with one another. So thanks for taking that moment and, and, uh, and connecting with one another. My name's Steve Wallen. I'm the campus pastor here. I'm so glad that you joined us this morning. I just realized it's almost March and I forgot to tell you guys what I got for Christmas. I was so excited about it that I thought I'd bring it today. And um, I, haven't, I haven't opened it, but it's not because I'm not excited. It's because of the season. But this is what I got for Christmas this year. It is a weed eater. Um, but it's not just any weed eater, it is a cordless weed eater. And so, uh, you know, it's got two batteries, says on the package, which I'm very excited about. And I'm tired of dragging the orange extension cord around the lawn. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody who does the lawn, you know what I'm talking about, right? And so, um, also my cord isn't quite long enough so that when I do the front, I have to plug it in the front of the house. And when I do the back, I have to plug it in the back of the house. And what a pain. And then you got to roll the cord up if you're uh, a neat freak like me. So anyway, I was very excited. I got this. And I know that as you look at my weed eater, some of you are thinking, oh, that's great, Steve. Your wife got you a chore. Um, (laughs) But I do want you to know it's something I asked for. And I feel like as we get older, the things we ask for change, don't they? Like um, when I was a kid, if somebody had gotten me socks or underwear for Christmas, uh, I would have been very disappointed, right? That's like the death knoll for a kid to get socks or underwear. I asked for both socks and underwear for Christmas this year because I'm getting mature. And as you mature, the things you ask for should change, but not not just gifts, like as a kid, if I were to do something wrong, part of my punishment might be that I wouldn't get to go to a friend's house or that I'd have to go to my room. And now those are the things I desire most in life. <laughs> I gotta stay home all day and stay in my room. Oh gosh, it's like my ideal day, right? Because as we get older, as we mature, the things we ask for change. And I think it should be the same way with our prayers as well. You know, that as we get more mature in our faith, the things we pray for, the things we ask God for, should change. They become a little less me-focused and a little more others-focused. They, they become less self-centered and more kingdom-centered. And uh, we're going to take a great look at that uh, example of that today. So if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to open them to Acts chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some of these blue ones on the table in the back of the room. Uh, and these are a gift to you. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't have one that's uh, easy for you to read, I wanna just encourage you to grab one of these and take it home with you because we are reading through the book of Acts as a church this year, and you can't read through it if you don't have a Bible. And so grab that one. Uh, It's on page 760. Acts chapter four is on page 760 if you have that Bible. And uh, we are in this series called Sent uh, in the fourth week of this series. And in Matthew 28, Jesus said, go and make disciples. And then... In Acts 1.8, he appeared to his followers right before he ascended into heaven. And he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Thinking about the intentionality of those words and the promise of those words and 
how intentional Jesus was, go, make disciples, witnesses, a power. I'm sending you. God wants to use every person to help others find their way back to him. He wants to send us. And here at Genesis, we want to be a sent church. We want to be a church that is not so focused on what's happening here, but on what's happening out there so that we can go and find people out there. And the book of Acts is a great picture of the early followers of Jesus doing just that. Uh, They're doing exactly what Jesus commanded them to do. And so as we study through the book of Acts this year, our desire is to do the same thing, that that Jesus is our model for ministry and for life. And so we want to act in obedience with his will. So last week, if you were here, we talked about what we read about uh, Peter and John and two of Jesus's disciples, probably his closest disciples, maybe his closest friends in life. And they went up to the temple Uh, to pray as they did on a regular basis. And they came across this man who was lame from birth. Now, lame in this case, students in the room, lame in this case doesn't mean that he listened to dumb music or he had a side part or that he wasn't on TikTok, okay? That's not what lame meant. Lame means that he couldn't walk. He couldn't walk from birth. And uh, if you remember, he was at the temple begging for money. He was standing outside or sitting outside the temple gates. And when Peter and John came along, they saw him. The Bible says that they looked into his eyes. They noticed this man. Friends, how important is it for us? Uh, If we're gonna be salt and light on this earth, how important is us for to notice people who are usually unnoticed? How can we make somebody feel important, to feel seen, if we just take a moment out of our day to acknowledge them or give a little hand where we can? I mean, even today, you could make someone's day just by noticing them if they're not usually noticed. I mean, it could be as simple as when you go out to lunch today, um, giving a generous tip to the waiter or waitress if they're having a hard day. It could be uh, stopping to talk to that person in the lobby who looks like they're a little bit lost or looks lonely. Whatever it is, you can help someone feel like they matter. Now, as we watched the life of Jesus, he was brilliant at this. And we would often see the disciples, including Peter and John, standing off to the side, arguing over something while Jesus was noticing someone. But you can tell because they spent enough time with Jesus that they started to notice this pattern of his. And so now after Jesus is gone, Peter and John are the ones stopping to notice people. We can make people feel noticed. We can help somebody feel like they matter. So in this case, Peter and John noticed this man and in the name of Jesus, they healed him. He was able to get up and walk. Now, what we didn't talk about in the service last week, but what you read if you're following our reading plan is that other people in the temple started to notice this man after that. He got up to walk and people in the temple saw this man walking around. It caused quite a stir. And then the disciples were emboldened by this and they decided to stand up and tell people what was going on, especially Peter and John. They started preaching to the whole crowd in the temple for prayer. They basically said, hey, the Messiah, to the Jewish people that were there gathered for prayer, the Messiah that you've been waiting for, he was here. His name was Jesus and you missed him. Well, no, in fact, you didn't miss him, you killed him, Uh, but that's okay. Because even, in fact, even when you had the opportunity to set him free, you chose not to set him free, but you set free a murderer. But God raised him from the dead. But you know what? You didn't know any better. But now that you do, you better repent. You better turn your life around and uh, be baptized because he's coming back and he's gonna make everything right again. That's basically the message that Peter and John uh, 
let go before the people in Acts chapter 4. And so that, or in Acts chapter 3, the ends of Acts chapter 3. And so that's where we're going to start in Acts 4.1, if you've got your Bibles open. Uh, if not, it'll be here on the, on the screens. Acts 4.1 says this. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. So they're speaking this message. You killed Jesus. He was raised from the dead. He's coming back. They come up to him. Uh, and they come up to him in uh, verse two, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, so that's why they're disturbed. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put him in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Now the Jewish leaders had a lot of power in Jerusalem. Uh, because they were kind of in charge of uh, keeping, they wanted to keep everything under control. As a result of this commotion in their temple, they have Peter and John arrested. These guys are thrown in jail for the night, but not before, did you notice this? Not before a couple more thousand people come to know Jesus as savior. Uh, it, because of uh, the healing and then Peter's explanation, Peter's sermon that he let go before the, the Sanhedrin, before the, uh, the people gathered for prayer, another 2,000 men, came to know Jesus. And remember now, when the Bible counts people, it's usually counting just the men. And so obviously some of these men probably had their families with them, wives, kids. And so when we hear 5,000 men, it's probably many more than 5,000 people. It could be as many as 10 or 15,000 people that are now followers of Jesus. This is exponential growth. I don't know if you've noticed this, but uh, started with 120 people uh, right after he's, he's, uh, he died and grew to 3,000. 3,000 people came to Christ on the 3,000 men on the day of Pentecost, and now it's over 5,000. Uh, this is exponential growth, and the teachers of the law are angry and probably a little bit scared. And so by Acts 4, 5, the temple leaders drag Peter and John out of jail. They bring them in front of the Sanhedrin. This is the, the high court. You didn't mess with these guys. These were the ruling authorities, and they were very prestigious. It was their responsibility to keep order in Jerusalem, which was really important because remember, the Jewish people were under the rule of the Romans and the Romans very rarely got involved. Only if there was trouble did the Romans have to send somebody to get involved. That's when we see like a Herod getting involved or Pilate getting involved when there's trouble. So as long as there's no trouble, there are no Romans. And so the Sanhedrin, it's important they were able to keep control, right? This is, this is what they do. So Peter and John are brought before the Sanhedrin and uh, someone shouts from the high court, why are you two saying these things? Who gave you this right? And so what does Peter do? Well, he did what any good preacher would do when you gather him in front of a crowd. He passed the offering plate around, right? No, that's not what he did. He preached a sermon. He preached a message from, and shares from the message of Jesus, the son of God, the one who lived and died and was raised from the dead. And as he concludes his message to these men, I wanna point out one final statement that he made. And it's a statement that might bother you because it seems incredibly narrow and exclusive. It does today and it did even back then, but we find it in Acts 4.12. Peter tells the people this. He says, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. It got the Sanhedrin fired up. It's words like these that cause many people to stand in opposition to Christianity today. I mean, come on, isn't that a little bit narrow? Uh, isn't that a little exclusive? Well, 
unfortunately, those kinds of questions are causing some churches to start uh, softening the message because they're afraid of being viewed as not inclusive, right? Everybody isn't going to be receptive to the message of Jesus, but just because people stand in opposition to this message doesn't mean it's wrong, right? And in Genesis, we believe that salvation is found in no one else, that there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. The answer is Jesus. And this is what Peter knew and believed. And while some people today will say, you know, you need to tone down that message, uh, why do you have to be so narrow-minded? That's not very politically correct. This is a truth we will not compromise on. This is something that we believe. Jesus is the only way to heaven. That message is good enough for you. It's good enough for me. It's good enough for anyone. It's not exclusive at all because everyone is welcome. Everyone is included at the table of Jesus. He died for all the people. He invites everyone who will come and embrace this message for his or her life. But each of us has to accept or reject this message on our own. We can't be saved through our parents' faith. We can't be saved through a friend. We have to decide for ourselves, what do we believe about Jesus? There's no middle ground. We're in or we're out. So Peter had the courage to talk about this. He had the courage to speak his heart and his courage left the Sanhedrin in a challenging place because while they refused to believe his message, they couldn't deny the fact that this lame man was walking. And so they kind of huddled up together. And this is what we see in Acts 4.13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. Man, do I love this phrase in verse 13. Uh, they said that they were unschooled, ordinary men, but they had been with Jesus. And as I read through this again this week, I thought, I think that's what I want to have written on my tombstone. You know, here lies Steve Wallen, an unschooled, ordinary man, but he's been with Jesus. I mean, isn't that cool that they would say that? Uh, to hear someone, maybe even someone far from God. I, I would love to hear, like, um, people say that about our church. Like, maybe, maybe I don't want them to say we're unschooled and ordinary, but I love when people talk about our church like that. This church has been with Jesus. I mean, wouldn't you love to hear people say, even if they're far from God, like, I don't know if I believe or can, can accept their message yet, but man, I love the way those people love people. I love the way that they are so passionate about what they believe in. I love the way that they live like Jesus. So, so that's what happened. They kicked Peter and John out for a while. They couldn't figure out what to do with them. They, conf they, kicked, they, conferred, they kicked them out and they conferred together and they knew they couldn't act rashly. Why? Because they had this um, man walking around, but check this out. This is one of the, my favorite verses in this whole passage. It was an undeniable proof that a miracle had happened. And here's what it was in Act 4.22. It says, for the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Holy cow, can you believe that somebody over 40 years old could even be walking around. I wonder if his knees still popped when he bent over after Jesus healed him, you know? Like, did he still make groaning sounds when he got up off the couch? I don't know, he's over 40 years old, so probably did. You know, I wonder if he still had to get up and pee in the middle of the night. I don't know, I mean, like, he was over 40, come on, can you believe this is a miracle? And the rulers are so overwhelmed by this astounding miracle that they decided to warn Peter and John and then send them on their way. So that's what happens in Acts 4.18. They called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, I love this reply, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to listen to him? 
But as for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And friends, this is so important because people may not always believe what you believe, but they can't deny your story, right? They can't take your story away. They, they can argue with something that you've read in the Bible, whether it's true or not, but they can't take away what's happened to you. You, if, if, if you've encountered Jesus, if he's made a change in your life, something has happened to you. Maybe you got rid of a habit because of Jesus. Maybe you uh, were able to heal a relationship because of Jesus. Maybe there's something in your life that's changed and you are a different person on this side of Jesus than you were on the other side. It's happened to you. You've seen it. You've heard it. You can't stop talking about it because it's your story, right? Somebody, they can't take that away from you. If, if, some, if Jesus has come into your life and you have seen a difference, don't stop talking about what you have seen and what you have heard. That's what Peter and John are saying. It happened to me, we saw it, we heard it, we're not gonna stop talking about it. And the Sanhedrin kind of gives up. They're, they're let free. They, Peter and John, they go back and they find their group. They find people like Mary and James and Andrew and all the other disciples. And once they're back with them, all the disciples breathe a sigh of relief because these guys were in jail and they didn't know what was gonna happen. Are they gonna be locked up and put in prison for the rest of their lives? Are they gonna be killed for the message that they're spreading? Uh, they didn't know. And so they're so relieved that they decide to pray. And this is where I wanna stop and talk about what our prayers look like. Because remember early on, I said that as we mature, the things we ask for should change, right? As we mature, the things we pray about should change. And so today I wanna challenge you in the way that you pray. I wanna I believe the way that you pray says a lot about your faith. It says a lot about how God is stretching you. But because you're also the church, how you pray says a lot about the church and what the church believes and what our focus is and where we are. And so as we mature, the things we pray for should change, right? So we're gonna look at this prayer in Acts chapter four. But before we do, let's talk about prayer for a second. I wanna ask you, like, what are the things that you normally pray about? Isn't it true that most Christians, we tend to say the same prayers over and over again, right? Pretty much the average prayer goes something like this. God, I thank you for today. I pray for my family today. I pray that you would be with me, uh, help grandpa get out of the hospital, whatever it is, amen. Am I right? That's kind of how we pray. We, we were very predictable, very repetitious. We use the same statements over and over again. I'm not saying this about you. I'm saying it about me, okay? I'm not preaching to you right now. I'm preaching to me. Our prayers are pretty predictable, pretty re repetitious. And when you think about it, they're very me-centered, right? I'm guilty of this. I, I do this. I'm convicted at times when I pray with my family. Maybe it's mealtime and I'm hungry. And so uh, there are times when my prayers just cover the bare minimum so that I can open my pie hole and shove something in it, right? But I model prayer for my family. And so it's embarrassing to me. So what do we typically pray for? We pray for a safe trip. Uh, we pray for last minute help on a test. We didn't study for that, but we're gonna ask God to come in and intervene and miraculously give us an A when we deserve an F. We're gonna ask for it because we're being bold, right? Uh, we ask for God to help us get more money so we can pay the bills. We pray for the sick people in our lives to get well. Now hear me on this. I'm not trying to make fun, really, I'm not. I only say it because I do it too. And I'm not suggesting that you stop praying for things like this because it's, it's all about your heart, right? And if your heart is right, then I believe that God hears our prayers. But let me ask you this. Let's suppose that for the last year, God answered every prayer that you've ever prayed for the last year. Who would benefit the most? 
I know in my life, if God answered every prayer I've prayed in the last year, I would benefit the most, right? My guess is that if God answered every prayer that you've prayed in the last year, that you would benefit the most. Because typically, our prayers are me-focused, right? They're very self-centered. Again, I'm not saying that you should quit praying for you. I'm not. I need God's help. I need God's help every day. And all I'm saying is that if our prayers are only ever me-focused, it won't take long before I become a very self-centered Christian. And if you get enough self-centered Christians together, you get a self-centered church. And a self-centered church is not a sent church. And we want to be a sent church. Because there are people out there that desperately need to know the love of Jesus. And when we become self-centered, we become so focused on what happens in here. Well, I didn't like the preaching today. Oh, that music was terrible. Wasn't it too loud in there? Did you think it was too loud? I thought it was too loud. Man, they ran out of bagels. I only got there five minutes late. I can't believe they ran out of bagels today. Like we get so self-centered. We get so focused on the things that we like and we want and our preferences. And we completely lose sight of the fact that there are people out there who are going to hell, who are destined for eternal separation from God unless we do something about it. We want to be a sent church. We want to be a church that's sent into the community and sent into the neighborhood. I know you don't want that. I don't want that either. I I believe that you and all of Genesis Church are here to make a greater difference for God and his kingdom. And did you know that his work is only beginning here? Like if we keep our eyes focused on Jesus and if you will allow God to grow you in your faith and in your heart, there's no limiting what God might do through you and through this church. So let's just pretend for a second. Let's suppose that uh, Peter and John are there, but it's not the first century, it's the 21st century. They're, and they're in America. They're in the American church, all right? And they're, they've got all the disciples together and they're getting ready to pray because they've just gotten out of jail. They're so thankful. They're gonna get together and pray. What are they gonna do? Well, first of all, before they pray, I'm gonna guess they set some ground rules. Uh, something like, okay, Peter and John, you're no longer able to travel together. <laughs> we gotta get separate cars separate plane rides. We can't afford to lose you both, okay? Uh, and then, uh, hey, we're, we're gonna tone the message down a little bit, all right? We got so many people coming, we can't accommodate them all. I mean, we got 5,000 people in this church right now, but I've noticed that you only ever talk about salvation and forgiveness and grace. It, it, it's drawing too many people in here. It's getting too crowded. It's so hard to find a place to park. Um, maybe what we need to do is talk about something different for once. Maybe we should talk about money, drive some people away, okay? Let's, let's do that. But after we do that, after we set the ground rules, what are we gonna pray? Probably something like this. God, protect us. God, keep us from this, cover us in this. God, put a, put a hedge of protection around us. We pray that a lot, right? A hedge of protection. I don't even know what that means, but like uh, we're gonna put a hedge of protection around us. Uh, but we pray for protection, right? Well, here's how the first church prayed. And, and I think this is the kind of prayer that God honors. And I think to be honest, this prayer is one of the main reasons that the church, that the gospel message of Jesus even made it out of the first century. It's, it's the, one of the main reasons we're here today. Here's their prayer, Acts 4.29. It says, now, Lord, consider their threats. Remember, they were threatened never to go preach the name of Jesus again. Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Boldness? Really, they prayed for boldness? <laughs> Isn't boldness what got them into this mess in the first place? 
They're, they're standing in the temple and they're being bold in their message and they get thrown in jail. And so what do they ask for? Not for protection, not for help, not for grace. They ask for more boldness. Like we wanna do it again, but on a grand, grander scale, right? I think they've really nailed the boldness piece. I really do. Have you ever in all your life prayed for boldness? I mean, are we even allowed to pray for something like that in 2023? Doesn't boldness rub, rub people the wrong way? Isn't that why so many people are turned off by Christians today because we're so bold? Well, maybe you haven't prayed for boldness, but that's what they did. They're getting these threats and it's only gonna get worse, but they're not gonna tone it down. When they're faced with these threats and this opposition, these Christians, this church prayed for more boldness. Now, I didn't say weirdness. There's a difference, okay? We're not called to be weirdos or insensitive idiots. And we could talk about a whole bunch of ways that we as Christians and churches have done great harm to the message of Jesus in the name of something like boldness. Some of us get so bold about things that we have no business being bold about. We get bold about things that we're 55% sure of. We we get bold about issues where we read one news source or one side of the story, or we get bold about something that my coworkers, cousins, kids saw at their high school that we're sure now is happening all over the country. But what if we got really bold about the things that really matter? Like, in fact, what if we took all the boldness we say for our political opinions and our diet opinions and our opinions about schools or sports or whatever we get passionate about, what if we took all of that boldness and we put it behind the gospel of Jesus Christ? Like, what could happen? I'm talking boldness is in courage, boldness is in eagerness, boldness is in passion, boldness is in Jesus is coming back. And it could be today or it could be tomorrow or it could be next year or it could be way off in the future but it doesn't matter because we're gonna be bold about proclaiming his word. Do you know why the message of Jesus even made it to us in 2023? Boldness. It's because these first century Christians prayed for boldness and we don't even think about it, but this is the first thing they prayed when they were in trouble. They prayed, God, enable us, your servants, to be bold for your name and with your message. And then they said this, Acts 4.30, second part of this prayer, stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So what they were praying for in effect was for Jesus's name to be glorified and for him to be made famous because of everything that was happening in the church in that moment. It's something that we might call revival. They didn't call it revival back then because there had not been a vival. <laughs> you know, you need to revive something there, you know, this was the first time that the gospel was coming to this place, but we would call it revival. I know many of you have watched closely what's happened at Asbury Seminary over the past couple of weeks and what started with a simple chapel service with a few students that stayed late to pray and repent turned into a large gathering where many people said that God's Holy Spirit was present and moving and crowds grew and curious believers and skeptics from all over the place came to see what was actually happening there. And, you know, was this something that was real and it was the manifest presence of God on earth or was this something that was manufactured and made up and was it really revival or was it something else? And can we trust these kids with the future of the church and our theology and all these questions were swirling? And it's so funny to me that, you know, adults would say something like, man, this generation needs a movement of God. And then maybe when it happens, they're like, well, not, not that. Maybe, maybe not. Like we want to direct that movement of God. I don't know what it is, but I love what Tim Tennant, who's the president of Asbury said in, within the first week, he said he, that he preferred to call an awakening. And he said, only if we see lasting transformation 
which shakes the comfortable foundations of the church and truly brings us all to a new and deeper place, can we look back in hindsight and say, yes, this has been a revival. And that's exactly what we're going to see in the weeks to come as we continue through Acts. The, the authorities and the teachers of the law are going to start to clamp down and try to make things tougher for the disciples. But in spite of that, they're going to be shaken by a new covenant, the, the covenant of the gospel message, the covenant uh, that we celebrated through communion a few minutes ago. The covenant of the gospel message that's still alive today over 2,000 years later, that though all have sinned and fall short of God's glory, that God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And to all who believe and call on his name, he gave the right to be called the children of God. We want that message to spread like wildfire all over the earth. It's why we're praying our everyday prayer. And I hope you're praying it along with us. It goes like this, Father in heaven, thank you for saving me. I want you to do for others what you've done for me. Use me today to help others know you. What could happen if our whole church prayed that prayer every day for a year? Like what, what could God do? I mean, how many people could come to know him? Could, could our constant petitions to God of a prayer that he wants to see happen anyway could that help spark a revival? It's happened before. And I believe by faith, it could happen again. Hey, we're gonna close our service by praying and singing one last song, but we're gonna do something a little different. If, if you're able, would you stand? And uh, let's, we're gonna pray together. And as I listen to kind of accounts of what was happening at Asbury over the last couple of weeks, people who were there said it started with three things started with praise, prayer, and repentance. Praise, prayer, and repentance. And so in this moment, I just want to pray, and we're going to praise in a moment, but I want to pray and repent. And we'll just take this moment. If you, if you are, would you just bow your heads with me, close your eyes. And uh, Lord, um, I'm coming before you right now to repent of the places in my life where I have not been believing enough of you where I've not been faithful. And Lord, I'm coming to repent of weak prayers. Like my, my prayers are sometimes so weak and ineffectual. They're so self-centered. They're so about me and my family and things I need and things I want and what I desire. And Lord, I know that your greatest desire is to use me and to use us, use this church to go help find others, to populate your kingdom, to, to fill up heaven and to empty out hell. But God, I'm so busy worried about things that are happening in my house and my bank account and my life that I sometimes forget to, to notice people, to notice the people around us, to see the people that are hurting or frustrated or lost. And God, I want more of that. I, I, I pray right now for great boldness, great boldness to speak your name. It's easy for me to get up here on stage and in this room full of mostly converted people to preach your message and be bold about it. But then I get into a place where your message may not be accepted, where your love and grace aren't known and I just wanna shut up. Lord, I'm repenting of that right now. I want great boldness in my life. I pray for each and every person in this room, whatever it is that they're laying at your feet right now, that they're repenting of, Lord, would you just take it away? God, we wanna see 
your spirit come to this place. We want to see your name glorified. We want to see a revival, not just in a place, but in this country, in this world. We want to see your name be made great. God, when that happens, we're going to give you all the praise and all the glory. God, you've done it before. I believe you'll do it again. Pray this in Jesus' name.